I love that song. I think it's one of my favorites. Thank you. You know, when we were going through this story, we came to Daniel, I think it was last spring, and I asked the question that sermon, I'm going to ask it again, so forgive me on this, but what if the United States government made a law making it illegal to pray in a public building? For instance, in a restaurant, you know, uh, like you pray before a meal, some of you do that, and the logic behind that law would be that you Christians are forcing your religion on the public when you pray in a restaurant where everybody can see you. So, so in our so-called tolerant culture, prayer would not be tolerated. So you're in Calm Creek Cafe and there's signs plastered all over saying it's against federal law to pray or do any other religious action in any public building and you've been in the habit of praying before meals. Would you do it? Would you disobey that law and pray? And I don't think that scene is far-fetched. I could see that day coming where it is illegal to pray in a public building. Some of you may have heard about the restaurant owner down in North Carolina gave 15% off anyone who prayed before the meal, and they'd see someone praying and just give them that discount. Of course, that was immediately attacked as discrimination, and they were forced to stop it. And I could see the day where prayer is outlawed in public buildings. What would you do? Let me ask, does it say in the Bible you have to pray before every meal? No. There is no clear command about that. So why would you do it? We do have somewhat of a parallel in Daniel 6 where a law was passed that says you cannot pray for 30 days. And Daniel was in the habit of praying three times a day in an open window facing Jerusalem. And after the law passed, he went to his window, got on his knees and prayed three times a day where everyone could see he obviously broke the law. Let me ask, is there any command in the Bible that you should pray in an open window? Of course not. Daniel could have prayed privately. Did he do the right thing in disobeying the law? He was thrown into a den of lions for that. Was it worth it? Here's what Christians have to ask. When do we compromise and when do we not? Especially when we don't have clear, specific biblical commands like praying before a meal. When do we take a stand and when do we not? In this series, we're looking at how to live good lives in a foreign land because the Bible teaches we are foreigners and strangers. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. In other words, our citizenship is not here. And we who follow Christ sometimes can be labeled as oddballs. So, so how do we live as strangers in this foreign land? Verse 12, Peter says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. That word properly, by the way, means good. Live such good lives among your unbelieving neighbors that they'll be drawn to Christ. So we're oddballs. We're strangers. We're foreigners. But can we be attractive oddballs? In fact, I want you to tell the person right next to you, you are odd. Tell them right now. Because... I see some of you really do believe that person's odd. Anyway, we are oddball. And the question that we have to ask, so, is are we attractive oddballs? Daniel lived properly, good life among his unbelieving neighbors. He knew when to compromise, he knew when to take a stand, and he knew how to take a stand. So we're going to look at him because he's a really good example for us to follow. Now, the Jews had been run out of their homeland. Some of them, including Daniel and his friends, were transported to Babylon, Babylon 600 miles away. So they're no longer in Jewish culture. 
So they're in this alien land dominated by a pagan religion. There is no temple for them to go to and worship. No more sacrifice, no ritual. They had to recalibrate their faith. And so the question was, how do we now express our devotion to God in this new environment? How can we still be Jews in a new setting? And that's really what we face in America. Things have changed. Jesus has fallen off the screen in Western civilization. We are no longer a society with a Christian worldview at its foundation. We are now a polytheistic society that is not friendly toward the one true God. We have moved from a Judeo-Christian base culture to one that is post-Judeo-Christian, if not anti-Judeo-Christian. And last week we talked about this pretty much at length, uh, about our tolerant culture that is both illogical and intolerant. Now, if you weren't here for that, you may want to get on the website or get a CD because to, we have to understand the land we're living in, the times we're living in. And in Daniel, it tells how Babylon wanted to assimilate these Jewish boys into their culture and how Daniel and these boys dealt with it. Chapter 1, verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief priests gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Ezariah, Abednego. So several of the cream of the crop from Judah have been transported to Babylon. I mean, these are the valedictorians and the stars, you know, and all that. So they can be trained to become public government servants. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wants to make Babylonians, essentially, out of these Jewish young men in this three-year program. And Daniel and his friends can react in one of several ways, and I'm going to give you three possibilities. One would be to react with distress. This is awful. We've lost our homeland. We're separated from our families. We're no longer in Judah. We're living in the midst of these non-believers, and they could have gotten negative and belligerent and depressed, and it was a tough situation. And they could have fought tooth and nail against the Babylonian ways and just been stubborn, and we can get that way too. And we can become negative and belligerent and depressed about our country and the direction it's going, and we can throw rocks and insults. So that's, distress would be one reaction. Another possibility is they could have given in. Well, it's... Just become a Babylonian. We can't beat them, so we'll join them. When in Rome, you know? So let's become like the culture around us. And we, too, can get that way. Just give in. We don't hold to God's standards. We go with the world. We just continue to compromise. You know, I hear parents and grandparents say, well, that's just the way kids are today. That's just the way the world is today. Really? You've given up. Given in. Or a third possible reaction, and here's what Daniel does, He sees his new circumstance as an opportunity. They face an opportunity to hold to their beliefs, to love God, and also to be a witness to the people and culture around them. So our goal on your outline in engaging our foreign land is to look for opportunities to serve God and our culture. Love God, love people. Now last week we had an opportunity at the high school. They were needing some help to get ready for the school year, and several of our, I announced it, and several of our men stepped up last week and did just that, and it was an opportunity to serve our community, our culture, and do it in the name of Jesus. By the way, <laughs> they could use a little more help this week, sometime after 3.30, Monday or Tuesday. If any of you can help, please let me know afterwards. Just a quick announcement. But so often, 
we're quick to draw battle lines and separate ourselves and put up walls and say, we're going to fight. We're going to fight Bush and we're going to fight Obama. And we're so quick to make enemies of the world and argue and belligerent. That's just not our goal. I remember one time I told the worship leader, this is about 20 years ago, I needed some songs on engaging the world. And she came up with a couple, and one was Battle Belongs to the Lord, and the other was Rise Up, O Church of God. And I said, no, 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 no. I, I don't want militaristic songs. That's not the primary way we're to engage our world. That's not what Jesus did. And then the worship minister came back and said, I've been looking for half an hour, and I can't find any songs about engaging our culture except militaristic adversarial type songs. You, you mean we don't have any music that tells how to engage our culture without fighting? Well, we do. We do. But that was an eye-opener. Even our music can take an us-versus-them stance. And some of the stuff by evangelicals that I read is negative and combative. It's distressful. It's awful. And then on Facebook, you hear what Christians say, and you wonder, is that what Jesus would do? You know, really? And I'll be honest, I get distressed at times, and I can get negative at times. We all do about what's going on in the world. Well, Daniel presents a better way. How to live in a culture that is no longer favorable to Judeo-Christian values. The goal for which every one of us should strive is please God first, but also to please others. Now, we can't always do that. Dan, Daniel found that out later on. But we, that ought to be our goal, to honor God and love people. There's four areas where these Babylonians in their training program was trying to change these Jewish boys. Four areas where these boys could have said, nope, we won't do that. So four challenges, challenges they faced. Number one is their names. Now this was pretty traumatic. They were forced to exchange their Hebrew names for Babylonian names. Daniel means God is my judge. Good, God-honoring name. He was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protects his life. Bel was a Babylonian god. So Daniel's name shifts his allegiance from God to Bel. Same with Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. In every case, a God-honoring name is changed to a pagan-honoring name, and surprisingly, they don't balk on it. Okay, you've renamed us. And they don't complain. I'm sure it bothered them. I mean, it would be like someone changing a liberal's name to Rush. You know, they would not be happy with that because of the connotation. Or a conservative's name to Barack. You know, they'd probably not like that. These guys are given names that contradict what they believe. They don't say a word. Now, let me say this, by the way. Compromise... It's not a bad word, not a bad thing. Sometimes compromise is the right thing to do. If you're married, you know all about it. If you have kids, if you have any kind of friendship, you know what I mean. The problem is knowing when to compromise and not when to, you know, when to take a stand. In chapter 6, Daniel takes a stand when it comes to prayer. He will not compromise. But here, he doesn't complain about a pagan name that will honor a pagan god. Second area, ch challenge, their education. They would learn things that were not in line with a, Christian, with a Jewish worldview. They were going to learn ungodly philosophies. They were going to learn things that were, frankly, wrong. Uh, some people wonder today, should a Christian go to a secular university where they may hear some anti-Christian challenges, you know, some anti-Christian worldviews, and they'll be taught tolerance that really isn't all that tolerant? And my answer to that, should a Christian go to a secular university? Some should and some should not. Some, can, some cannot handle it. Their upbringing has been so weak, they're not prepared 
for a secular education. They're not prepared for university life. Daniel and his three friends were grounded in the word they'd been taught, and they could filter this Babylonian education through the grid of the word. Some of our young people can go to the U of I and be fine. They can critique it. They can think for themselves. They're strong enough to handle the lifestyle. They'll get involved in a campus ministry. Others don't have a clue and certainly don't have the commitment. So Daniel and his friends, they don't balk on the secular education. And one thing we want to do here is to prepare young people for post-high school life. And in my opinion, most kids should go to one year of a Christian college just to get some grounding. I think that's the best investment you can make. But not all will go. And we need to, as a church, do our best to prepare them to think and have some solid theological understanding. Third point, they could have balked at. Third challenge was the government. This is the government that destroyed God's temple, desecrated it. This is the government that worshipped the gods that taught hate and annihilation. This is an ISIS or Hamas type of government. Their objective was to kill and destroy. Now, you'd think that a good Jew would refuse to be public servants of a heathen government by that, like that, but they don't balk. Daniel eventually becomes highly respected in this pagan, godless government. And then the fourth challenge was eating, the food, which was served at the king's table. Now, I look at those four, their names, their education, the government, and the food. Which of those is the least important issue? To me, it would be the food. And surprisingly, that's where Daniel puts his foot down. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Notice he asked to not eat the food. He doesn't demand. He's not belligerent. He's using grace. It's not a militaristic, negative, demanding approach. He's asking permission. Then verse 9, But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king then would have my head because of you. See, the chief official's job was to make sure these guys are given the best food so they can be in the best health and they can become the best servants in the government. So he's concerned that I could lose my head over this. And Daniel knows that. So here's what he says. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel doesn't bow his back. He doesn't take a stubborn, hard-headed approach. He just says, test us for 10 days, see what happens. Just try this. You see what he's doing? He's being submissive to God. He will not defile himself. He's standing firm without being belligerent. He's sensitive to his boss, to the culture. But why food? He doesn't complain about a Babylonian name that honors a false god. He doesn't complain about a curriculum that teaches a false worldview. He doesn't reject working for a government that destroyed the temple and destroyed his homeland. Why the food? We don't know. Hebrew law did lay down some dietary regulations, and maybe it was not kosher. Someone suggested this food was consecrated idols. Could be, but text doesn't tell us. We don't know. And the key word is, of course, the word defile. In some way, somehow, Daniel thought this would compromise his commitment to God that went too far, and he had to draw the line. We're not sure why. But let me give you three factors that I'm pretty sure filtered into his decision and three considerations for our participation or not in this world. Number one is our witness to non-believers. By taking a stand on food, Daniel was saying to the Babylonians, fellas, I'll take your classes, I'll take your name, I'll serve in your government. 
But don't get the idea that I'm abandoning who I am, my Jewish roots. I'm still a Jew. I'm a believer in the one true God, and you won't change that. He's sending a clear message to the world, I'm a Jew. That's who I am. I'm I'm God's man. And I mentioned last week, when I was growing up, my church would not let me go to dances, and we didn't play cards. We didn't play pool. Uh, We couldn't go to movies unless they were G. Maybe PG, maybe. But we just didn't do a lot of things. And to most of you today, that would sound silly. Some would call it legalism, and maybe so. And I felt like an oddball. You know, sit. I couldn't go to any of the dances. But here's what that did for me. It taught me that Christians take a stand. We are different. That person sitting next to you, if they are a believer, truly is different. An oddball. And Daniel is showing the world by not participating in this food who he is. It was a witness issue. And when we take a stand, we should do it, of course, in a way that makes it for a good witness. Second consideration is our encouragement to fellow believers. Daniel seems to be the leader of these other three boys. And, of course, there were other Jews in Babylon as well. And Daniel conveys to them that although they were Nebuchadnezzar's servant, they still had a higher authority that they served. So his... Stand on food was a reminder to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and any other believers, hey, they can change our names, they can change the curriculum, they can change where we live and who we serve, but they cannot change our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance. And later on, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also took a stand when they were told, not to, when they were told to bow and worship the king. They refused to bow and worship the king, and they were thrown into fiery furnace. And I wonder if Daniel's stand here in chapter 1 encouraged them to take a stand in chapter 3 later on. See, when someone in the church takes a stand, it's a reminder to all of us to be brave and to take courage. In school, if one kid takes a stand, if one kid says no, it can encourage others to take a stand. So it was an encouragement to other believers. And then another consideration is our personal commitment. Daniel's stand was a personal affirmation of his own commitment to prevent the corruption of his own heart, says Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Resolve literally means he purposed in his heart, I cannot do this. There's an issue of conscience. So he's telling the world, he's telling fellow believers, and he's telling himself, I am a follower of the Most High God, and I will not defile myself. It would have been easy to compromise and just compromise a little more and a little more the longer he was there and get sucked into that culture and eventually slide away from his Jewishness. He was climbing the ladder in the government. He was getting more and more involved in Babylonian ways and somewhere he knew he had to say, that's enough. I will not compromise on this. Now today we live in Western culture and all of us reflect cultural, Western cultural ways. The way we dress, we accept some cultural norms and that's all natural. But there has to come to a point where we say, we are different, and we will not compromise. Have you ever taken a stand for Christ? Society is always a threat to sanctity. The world is always a threat to the people of God, of sucking us in. And it doesn't matter if it's here, or Europe, or Japan, or India, or Babylon, we are always in danger of being enticed, and seduced by our environment, and losing our distinctiveness, and somewhere we have to draw the line and say, I am different. I am a Christian, and I will not bend on this. And if we don't draw the line somewhere, we will get sucked in. 1 Peter 2, again, says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. 
so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are different, you're holy, you're light. You've been called by God. Kids, in school, you are different. And if you're going to be light, you have to be different than the darkness. And then Peter says, dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. You stay away from the immoralities of this world, the greed and the selfishness. You don't have to compromise on those things. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Don't give in. Now, modern application that might be, if the internet causes you to sin, get rid of it, or at least get a filter and an accountability partner. If cable TV offers things that's going to pollute your family, get rid of it. You don't have to have it. There are some things that, even though they're perfectly innocent in and of themselves, could come to undermine our commitment. And it takes wisdom to know where we need to draw the line, wisdom to know what we can and cannot handle. There are certain books and movies that may not corrupt everybody, but they might corrupt you. There are certain places some Christians can go, others cannot go. I can go to the bar, and, and I can make friends, and I'm, I'm just not tempted to drink. That's just not a temptation for me. But a member of AA probably needs to stay away. Some people cannot handle a certain monetary lifestyle. And the only way for them to maintain faith is to adopt a simpler lifestyle. Jesus told the rich young ruler, you got to get rid of everything, because you aren't really going to follow me, because you can't handle money. You'll make that your God. See, if you're going to survive, if we're going to survive as a church, we need to find ways of retaining our distinctiveness. Here's where I draw the line. And for Daniel, it was food. And Daniel in doing this shows wisdom because he knows where to draw the line. He shows courage because it was risky to say no to the king. He had a lot to lose, including his life. And it takes grace. He does it in an attractive way. He doesn't demand or get belligerent. It's like Jesus said, be as innocent as doves, you know, be gracious, but you be wise as serpents, wise and courage. I just want Daniel to get us thinking, how are we going to live in this not-so-tolerant polytheistic environment? Daniel submits to God, he takes a stand, and he does it in a wonderful way. He's a model of graciously engaging the culture. He acted in a way that would please God and also please his superiors. We have to draw lines, folks. But we draw them as much as we can with wisdom and grace. Then verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. In other words, God was pleased that they took this stand and the way they took a stand, and he blesses them. The biggest difference between people who do well in life, those who have good relationships and those who do well and those who don't, it's not the stuff we usually get preoccupied. The biggest difference between those who do well and those who don't is not mostly about money. It's not mostly even about health or talent or good looks or IQ. Basically, the biggest difference, I believe, is these three right here. Courage, wisdom, and grace. It's the ability to re make really good decisions. And that's Daniel. Verse 19, the king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So not only was God pleased with them, but this pagan, idol-worshiping, polytheistic, Nebuchadnezzar was pleased as well. 
but it was tricky. How far, how much can we participate in this culture and still maintain our distinctiveness? You remember the Munsters? Herman Munster, Lily, Grandpa, Eddie, they're all pretty ugly. Munster-type people. And the black sheep of the family, the misfit and the oddball, was who? Who? Marilyn. She was also the beautiful one. I think it's a wonderful analogy for Christians. We're the misfits. We're the oddballs. But let's be beautiful oddballs. We don't look like the world. We don't quite fit in. And yet we do it in a way that is attractive. We're different in a good way. We're salt and light. We bring flavor and illumination to the world. We're good news. Paul said, let your conversation be seasoned with salt, not vinegar. Luke said in the early church, they found favor with God and people. So be a Daniel. Be wise, be brave, and be gracious. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so tricky and sometimes confusing to know just how we should interact with our world. You gave Daniel wisdom and courage and grace, attributes that we need so desperately today. Lord, we cannot be effectively be affected by living like our culture in every way. We need to be different, and yet we need to know how and when to be different. God, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us courage and give us grace. Help us as you help Daniel to live in a foreign land. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.